Hello, welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. Now, this is the first podcast I've recorded since Jacobin staff writer Megan Day and I turned in our first draft of our book on Bernie Sanders and the rising socialist movement in America, which is tentatively titled Bigger Than Bernie and set to be released by Verso Books in early 2020. Now, if words pour out of you like water, as they seem to do for Megan, writing a book is no big deal. But for people like me, it was absolute agony. It was an emotional roller coaster. Uh, please compensate me for my emotional labor of wildly oscillating feelings of personal inferiority and self-loathing. But then like, oh, am I actually a genius? And then like repeating the whole process over again. Please compensate me for that process by buying the book when it comes out. You will hear more updates on the book and uh, how to make that purchase when it is available on this podcast in the months to come. The reborn socialist movement in America can be chalked up in large part to recent socialist electoral campaigns. Bernie Sanders put socialism back on the map in 2016 as well as in his current run for president. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won her race for New York House, as did Rashida Tlaib in Michigan. And half a dozen socialists recently won seats on the city council here in Chicago. Now, a lot of these victories have come in strongly democratic cities, but one challenger for the House of Representatives who is going up against an incumbent Republican is Heidi Sloan. Heidi is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America in Austin, Texas, and she's running for House in the 25th District of Texas. I met Heidi at the DSA convention in Atlanta in early August, where we were both elected delegates. And afterwards, I sat down with her for her first in-depth interview about her background, why she's running, and her socialist vision for U.S. politics. Here's Heidi Sloan, 2020 candidate for U.S. House in Texas's 25th district. Heidi, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Thanks for being here. So you are running for Congress in the... 25th district in texas can you first of all just tell us a little bit about your story how you uh came you know to be running for congress <laughs> sure yeah um i'm a native texan i've been here my whole life and uh after college my first job was working in um this pre-k classroom for kids with disabilities and it was this beautiful space that i sort of accidentally wound up in, but loved once I was there where um, children from three to six years old were sort of taking each other by the hand and overcoming whatever life put in front of them that day, whether it was negotiating colors or figuring out how to communicate um, with sign language or learning math for the first time. Um, these kids working alongside of each other when I stopped teaching, I made it into the nonprofit world through this really incredible organization that uh, provides permanent supportive housing for the chronically homeless of Austin. And this place is my heart and my passion, and a lot of the people that I love the most in the world live there. But I've been there for seven years now, and over the years have seen the sort of deterioration that comes from a chronic cycle of homelessness. 
and I've lost people. Um, I've, I've been there when people have died and I have lost people to incarceration and I have walked with people as they struggle with substance use. And in these circumstances, the nonprofit world sort of wants to say this is a homelessness issue. And for me, I just started to realize that these are not issues that are just on the margins. These are issues for all of us that the folks that I was walking alongside of and continue to walk alongside of today are not so unique, are not so different or so removed that their health problems, um, their lack of access to community, to financial stability are the things that we all struggle with. And if we're not solving for the prevention of chronic homelessness by looking at poverty and by looking at trauma and by looking at mental health care, then we will never stop um, this sort of ever-flowing stream of people that are coming to nonprofits like mine all around the country. And not just that, but we won't stop this ever-flowing stream of trauma that affects all of us. So that sort of really intense um, life experience at work brought me into community organizing for the first time and really trying to see what we could do to stem that tide to alleviate some of that suffering in the world. And community organizing has brought me to this space, um, mostly through my work with Austin DSA, but through a lot of um, grassroots organizers here in District 25 who are out here on the ground trying to solve for these same exact problems. So you're talking about moving from viewing an issue like homelessness as a sort of individual issue to one that is tangled up in a whole system that's sort of pathological. I assume uh, that this is part of what brought you to join the Democratic Socialists of America as well, that kind of moving to a systemic analysis of the way the world works. Yeah, definitely. When I first started going to DSA meetings, someone read the Our Demands card out loud. And I just remember this moment of hearing a person doing the work in the community say, we demand the abolition of poverty. And it was such a refreshing moment for me, uh, such a moving and powerful moment for me to know that that is something we are allowed to ask for, and that is something we are allowed to envision. And we are not just talking about the effects of poverty, we're talking about poverty itself and the power that is tied up there. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of people who are both running for office or who are activists and organizers in their communities who talk about, basically before the Bernie Sanders campaign, not feeling like you could say that we should be able to get rid of poverty or that everybody should have free publicly provided health care or everyone should be able to go to college for free in America. You couldn't say those things and be taken seriously. And one of the things that the Sanders campaign and everything that's happened since then, the rise of DSA and everything else, has brought to us is the kind of expansion of people's political imaginations where they say like yes you can actually demand this stuff and you're not seen as somebody who you know isn't tethered to reality this is something that we can accomplish as a society and that we don't just accomplish for ourselves as individuals that 
we can and must say the make these universal claims um, and to know that our struggles, whether it is with medical debt or um, a lack of e- education access or the carceral state, that when we end up bound to these systems that we know are just like churning out injustice, we stop seeing that as a personal failure that we are able to say collectively, yes, me too, I am in this struggle, and not just I am in this struggle, but I am going to work towards the elimination of this struggle alongside of you. When we can, like, it's this strange pattern for us in DSA of actually building a movement around an issue almost takes this sort of confession of our own suffering, that this impacts me. And when we're able to say that to someone else and really hear that it impacts them too, no matter what their like life background or their political background has been up to that time, that's our starting point. So we're getting into some sort of weighty uh, political and philosophical territory here. How about just, you know, you mentioned being at an Austin DSA meeting. How did you come to uh, be at an Austin DSA meeting? What what brought you to the Democratic Socialists of America? I think I went to my first Austin DSA meeting because... I ended up at a polling location contemplating voting for someone that I know condones the murder of children in war. And just looking at those two options and saying to myself, this can't be it. So who are you referring to there? Uh, the Democratic presidential nominee, Hillary Clinton. I see. So you were in 2016 there ready to vote and just not feeling good about having to cast your vote for this person whose values you knew you didn't agree with. Yeah, it wasn't even like the lesser of two evils. It was um, there has to be more than voting here. I have to do something more than mark this box or that box right now. And that's where organizing, I think, comes into play. And was Austin DSA a presence in the uh, in Austin shortly after the election or around the time of the election? Or how did you come to then, you know, go from that feeling and standing in line to vote to joining Austin DSA? Austin DSA has actually been active for a really long time and has a fascinating history for me. Um, Glenn Scott was a huge influence. She was an incredible organizer. We last lost her last year. But she had this way of modeling exactly exactly what we want to be doing in our communities, which was to hear that concern and that contemplation and that stuck place, and then to invite you into just the next small step forward. And I went to my first awesome DSA meeting not knowing anyone, not knowing what was going on, and Glenn was there and she would remember your name and she would remember your work and she would just bring you in step by step into the spaces that um, you felt drawn to and empower you that it didn't take being a professional. It didn't take being born to do this. It didn't take being like a political savvy know-how kind of person that because you are human and because you have experience, you are valued here. And so like Glenn and then the character of Austin DSA, Um, both being welcoming and ready to get down to business really just like brought me into the vortex. And when was that? That would probably have been December of 2016. So since you joined the organization, in addition to the work that you do around homelessness uh, in your day job, 
what have you done with DSA? What campaigns have you been involved in? I've gotten to be a part of a number of local campaigns that have really impacted my political thinking and I think impacted our community here. Um, paid sick days comes to mind. The demand that every worker within the city limits of Austin have the right to earn paid sick time. And that's something that I got to be part of an incredible coalition of folks working on uh, from the grassroots on up here in Austin. And then we got to help with in Dallas and San Antonio, which is just now bearing fruit because Texas is at war with workers. Um, Austin has been sued over their paid sick policy, which we which we won and we got in place, but we haven't felt the effects of yet San Antonio too going through the struggle. But in Dallas now, we have thousands and thousands of workers uh, accruing this right. So paid sick was a huge one for me, um, learning how to talk to people at their doors and in their workplaces and seeing the power of the intersection of those two things in people's lives, their care for their families and the sort of control that their workplace can have over them when they are dependent on their wages um, in addition to paid sick days, we have worked on issues like the police contract uh, negotiations to hold Austin Police Department accountable to increase levels of transparency, um, to not just write a blank check and say, if we give you more money, then we think you will be more transparent, but actually that it works the other way around. You have to do it better first. Um, you have to prove that you can create more safe policing policies here in this city or you don't get anything. And that was that was a hard line to walk. But it's been fascinating to see how that idea has spread. Um, I don't want to take credit for that, but I got to be a part of that. And that was really powerful for me and really influential on how I see the justice system also worked here locally to, speaking of uh, the justice system, to decriminalize homelessness in Austin. This is a more recent campaign and highly intersectional for me. We had until July 1st ordinances that um, kept people from being able to sit, lie down, camp, or solicit help um, in the form of money in public. And we went to the city and just made the case for this being totally unconstitutional and totally inhumane. And we got those policies changed. The backlash against that has been fascinating. Um, our governor, Governor Abbott, has weighed in against that. Trump has hinted at his throwing his weight around against this issue. And our, our city council has really uh, gotten a lot of pushback. But again, that's creating these spaces where we can wade into the waters of people's fears and really talk to them about what decriminalization of folks who are really experiencing like the highest level of suffering in our society means for them as as housed individuals as business people does this threaten your existence or is this like more of a perceived threat we've also on the the sort of like more national level worked on a medicare for all campaign um, we actually targeted the district just south of me, Lloyd Doggett's district, to encourage Representative Doggett to sign on to H.R. 1384, which was a very long campaign. It took us about a year and a half, and we learned a whole lot about what power actually looks like in that context and eventually got Doggett to sign on to endorse H.R. 1384. Um, we are still pushing him to do more than endorse, 
to actually go out and promote this to his community because we know that electeds putting their name on something does not make it so. It is the demand of the people that creates real change. So I consider that an ongoing campaign, even though we officially got it signed off. And Doggett is a Democrat who represents a district, I think, that would butt up against yours if you were to win, right? That's that's also in Austin, and he is a Democrat, uh, but, but he was not willing to endorse Medicare for All until basically the Austin DSA campaign pushed him over and over again and demanded that he do that, right? That's right. Uh, Doggett is a progressive Democrat, and he actually, um, before these districts were so highly gerrymandered in 2012, would have been the representative for this area. Um, well, and he formerly was in the 25th district, right, which is where yep. you're now running for. That's right. That's right. So he got sort of pushed around, and he knows the full effect of that kind of politicking. Um but he really needed to hear from his constituency and from labor organizations and from grassroots leaders that Medicare for all is important to us and that we are asking this of him specifically. So you're running not against Doggett, uh, who's in the 35th district, but against uh, Representative Roger Williams in the 25th, who is a Republican, uh, which sets your campaign apart from some of the other ones, like, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign, of course, was against uh, a Democrat and against a kind of Democratic machine uh, in Queens and the Bronx. Uh, and a lot of the electoral successes that have happened through the Democratic Socialists of America in the last couple of years have been sort of intra-Democratic Party challenges, but you are up against uh, a Republican and in trying to research this guy, I have to say I did not come up with a lot about what he's been up to on Capitol Hill. I did find out that he is one of the richest members of Congress uh, with a net worth of $27.7 million. And that also that his uh, fortune comes from a used car. Uh, he's, he's like heir to a used car fortune. He owned a used, a used car uh, company, which just seems like too good for me. Is like this guy's literally he's a like used a- car salesman. He's like a caricature. <laughs> He's just like this sort of dud figure who doesn't show up anywhere. And and I have run into the same issue. I just really want to be able to point to specific policy that his he has supported that is horrible. And and he <laughs> votes he votes straight ticket all the time. And so we can do that. Right. But at the same time, like he doesn't he's not out there making waves. The Republican Party does not call him to do their like big dirty work. He is not like one of those figureheads. For a long time, people in his district called him Roger the Dodger because he just wouldn't show up like no one had seen him in years, which is kind of amazing. I will say my favorite um, story from researching Roger Williams is that the one piece of legislation that comes up was in the sort of negotiation between consumer rights and car dealerships. And there's an ethics investigation that happened a couple of years ago because definitely he had some things to say about um, where consumer rights ends and the rights of car dealerships begin. Uh, but that's about it. Yeah, I was reading this story from the Center for Public Integrity that he introduced an amendment in 2015 that would he would have financially benefited from. 
And according to this CPI story, uh, it was a provision proffered by Williams that allowed car dealers to rent or loan out vehicles, even if they are subject to safety recalls. <laughs> Definitely, you know, a person who is out here fighting for the little guy, you know? <laughs> well, um, luckily, the amendment uh, did not become law, according to the CPI, but an ethics investigation was uh, opened on him we should note that the ethics committee the house ethics committee uh in, in the words of the cpi scolds comma doesn't punish roger williams uh That's so right. he was he was not found guilty although he was uh, scolded so uh, yeah that that was about one of the only things i could find about him besides the fact that he uh, is is very rich and uh he's got this had this ethics investigation and he looks like he votes with trump according to 538 93.4 percent of the time what do you what do you do with that uh, as a as a candidate who's running against uh someone like that Right. I think that our recourse is not to talk about left-right politics here because he is part and parcel of the right. He is um, a candidate representing the Republican Party in a red district and a red state where people feel like that is part of their identity or they have for an awfully long time. And we don't win by saying you need to move further left. I'm not sure that everyone in this district agrees on what that means. What we need to say is that actually it's not about the left and the right. It's about the top and the bottom, that this district is rural and urban and suburban, that this district is almost entirely, we're talking hugely high percentiles, struggling just to get by. This, this district is the working class. And if we can make that case, that Roger Williams, the owner of used car dealerships, the multimillionaire, is not speaking for you because you are the working class and he is in opposition to your rights to democracy at home, in your communities, in your schools, in your workplaces, and in government, then I think we can move together. But I think that's what it will take. We absolutely have to create an alternative that includes everyone in this district that allows them to cultivate an identity that is other than just conservative, liberal, left, right. It has to say you and your station and your class you matter. We see that, and that that is powerful. You're also running against uh, another person who's vying for the uh, Democratic nomination named Julie Oliver. Can you talk a bit about her? Yeah. Um, Julie Oliver ran last cycle as well, and she narrowed or was part of the narrowing of the spread in this district to around nine points. Um, Julie Oliver is what I would say is slightly progressive of centrist Democratic. Um, she has come around to such policies as a Green New Deal and Medicare for All, though I will note that once upon a time when she was running last, last go round, uh, her husband knocked on my door, asked for my vote, and I said, is your candidate for Medicare for all? He said, no. I said, then I'm going to have to to pass. I'm not really interested in, in generating a lot of support for this. She's come around to that. And I appreciate 
how much the work of organizers across this country have credit for that. That is the work of many, many people to move um, centrist and, and slightly progressive Democrats into more universal policy land. But Julie Oliver is running a campaign for Julie Oliver to be elected. We are running a campaign for people in this district to have a voice. We are running for people to make their demands. And I think that is really the biggest distinction that I wouldn't be doing electoral politics if I didn't think it was important. But electoral politics without community organizing, with is- without issue-based organizing, and a platform that empowers people is electoral politics that will keep us exactly where we have been. Yeah, so can you talk about your vision for how you see your own campaign as creating, you know, more than just your victorious, uh, you know, path to office, but in creating those larger movements that you're talking about being so important? So when we talk about a movement building campaign, what we're talking about is lifting up the work that is already happening both locally and across the country. And so um, it is platforming the voices of people who are working for change, who are holding levers of power in their hands right now. So we went up to the northern tip of our district up near Fort Worth, and we rallied with Unite Here, where airline catering workers were demanding a living wage. Their their slogan was, one job should be enough. And that's right. Unite Here is a union, right? Unite Here is a union, and it is doing incredible work to organize People across several sectors, this one in particular, cooks and catering workers and people who work in airline industries in particular. So I think um, really important to understand their position of power in the world that when Unite Here makes demands, they are making demands on um, this massive global transportation system. And they really do recognize that they have a lever of power in their hands. Um So going up and struggling along with them, uh, marching and picketing along with them, seeing these people from around the country, from a vast array of backgrounds and a vast array of languages and ages and experiences, and being able to say, this is what happens when we organize, is where I think electoral politics can lift up both like the necessity for democracy in our workplaces, people's right to do that kind of organizing, and also let other folks across the country know what that struggle can look like, what their voices look like when they are engaged in democratic processes outside of the ballot. So how does a campaign like yours not just show up when there are those struggles popping off, but also help create more of them. I'm, and I'm thinking of, uh, you know, like one of the really innovative things that the Bernie Sanders campaign has done recently is use his campaign infrastructure to turn people out to picket lines when there are strikes or immigrant rights protests. Uh, obviously, his campaign infrastructure as president, running for president, is slightly different from yours in a single house race, but. Um, how do you see that 
dynamic of using the campaign not just to support the things that are already happening, the organizing efforts that are already happening, like the Unite Here campaign you mentioned, but to actually create more of that kind of organizing. So for us, when we go out and campaign for the Heidi Sloan for Congress campaign, when we go out and identify voters, we're not just talking to them at their doors about checking a box. We're talking to people about the policy that we endorse. We're talking about what a Green New Deal looks like in Austin, Texas right now, what it's going to take to affect change here, and then to use that as a catapult to envision what that those kinds of changes would look like across the country. So you mentioned what Green New Deal would look like in Austin. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think that the Green New Deal framework is one of the most urgent and necessary political platforms that we have. We have created language now to be able to talk about climate change, not in the just disastrous sense, which is absolutely true and apparent, but in the responsive sense that it's going to take all of us to build a world that can cope with climate change. And this is what where the conversation starts with that. And so we are going out and we're talking to people um, about Austin, about what we see right here, right now, about how our family's health is affected by uh, dependence on the fossil fuel industry, what it will look like to transition from that and to push the envelope to say that we have to transition more equitably, more quickly, and we have to account for the jobs that are moved from that sector, as well as for the people who may be displaced by the damage already done. So we're going to talk to the community about that right now, but we're not just talking about sort of the um, voter and that democratic space of the Green New Deal. We're also talking talking about the workplace end of the Green New Deal. And so we're in conversation with rank and file union members, particularly people in the buildings trades. These are the folks whose hands are going to create a world that provides a just infrastructure that gets us through this. And so we need their input. We need their wisdom. We need their buy-in. We need their leadership. And so we're talking to them already about what that can look like, um, whether it is in their apprenticeship programs, whether it is in the contracts that they already have, um, beginning to say, what is the vision for an intersection of just jobs, which for me, just jobs means union jobs, and a future that is, is built for everyone, a space that is built for everyone. The Green New Deal as the intersection of our democratic control over the energy that we use, our democratic control in our built environment, but also in things like housing. We know that the impact of gentrification and urban sprawl and homelessness as it relates to both affecting climate change and being affected by climate change is profound. And we have to account for that. And I can't wait because this is a conversation we have to have. We have to talk about unions building better houses for everyone. And those houses have to be able to withstand and mitigate the climate crisis. I just think it's like this brilliant moment that we absolutely um, have to be leveraging. The other issue I mentioned and that you've mentioned is Medicare for All. How do you see yourself joining that fight if you were elected to Congress? I think about Medicare for All every day. 
I think about how I'm not sure how my sister and I are going to care for my mom as she's aging without Medicare for all. I think about how my partner as an adult has never had his own health insurance. I think about Medicare for all and the people that I have lost to the experience of homelessness and to the many, many years that their body went without care. When I think about building this universal policy, which I think will be the first of many, this is the ground on which we get to prove so many things. We get to prove our commitment to equity, to inclusivity, to saying that when we mean Medicare for all, we mean everyone who's here. We mean the gender that you identify with, we care for. We mean that your preference for home-based or community-based care rather than institutionalization, we care for. We mean everyone. We mean folks in rural areas where hospitals are closing. We mean folks struggling to pay their rent in the urban core. We mean that when we achieve Medicare for all, the workers who have been part of this enormous insurance industry, not making a profit, but being used for the profiteers at the top, they will find just transition into other work. And I think for some of them, they got into healthcare and healthcare insurance because they actually wanted to do good for people. I think we will find the opportunity to empower this group of workers that has been so maligned, that has been so sort of disregarded and to find a place for them. And Medicare for All proves these concepts. It proves our solidarity with one another if we do it right. And so I see my role as not just getting a bill that is passed that is good enough, but demanding that everyone be accounted for, that everyone get the same quality of care, that we not be divided, and that we're not just seeing um, the care for our bodies, but the care for our social structures as part of these universal policies. If you were elected to the House, you would be the third DSA member there with Rashida Tlaib of Michigan and AOC of New York, as well as the broader squad that they are a part of that includes Alan Omar. And of course, the big issue of the day uh, with regard to the squad is in how President Trump has worked uh, with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel to try to keep uh, Tlaib and Omar from visiting Israel, as well as a general campaign against them, accusing them spuriously and, and insanely of being anti-Semitic uh, because of uh, support for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. So if you were in the House, how would you relate both to the question of BDS against Israel, as well as this broader uh, pushback against uh, Tlaib and uh, and Alan Omar um, by Trump and by Benjamin Netanyahu. Right. Not to harp on the same framework over and over again, but as an organizer and as someone who 
deeply believes that our strongest identity is our identity as the working class. When we talk about the situation in Israel and Palestine, what I think about is not just the entities, the governing bodies. What I think about is the people and the squad (laughs) pursuing conversations with the people in order to promote democracy. I do not have any fear around that. What I see is that the people who are afraid of those kinds of conversation, of leaders from the U.S. going to talk to people on the ground with lived experience, is that the squad threatens power. It threatens the people who own the system. It threatens the people who profit off the system. And if people in power try to stop you from talking to those without power, it is not a mystery why they would do that. They are threatened. They are fearful of what happens when we who experience oppression gather our stories and share them amongst ourselves and fight to build something that works for all of us. I don't think it is that unique of a situation. I just think that it is a profoundly um, difficult and deep manifestation of the power dynamic that we see at play all the time. And how would you characterize that in in the case of Israel-Palestine, for example, or the the Israeli-U.S. relationship? I think that justice is always international. And when Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar were going to go and bring um, a conversation about justice with them in visiting Israel and Palestine, that the response to that by Netanyahu and by Trump and and the coordinated conversation therein is a fear of justice. It is the the understanding that we are stronger when we work together and that the squad and, and these amazing women in Congress have been doing such a great job of building power and conversation here in the U.S., And also that we know there are voices in Israel and in Palestine that are building for justice there. And if those two forces come together, there is a real fear of what would transpire in that space. And I think that that is um, the reaction that we saw. And I, I would not be surprised if that continues to be the reaction across the world. These women are maligned, not just by Trump, but by everyone in Trump's class. Last question. The squad have gotten a lot of moments that have gone viral when they have been on committees and they have been questioning various kinds of evildoers to their face. You know, Alan Omar famously uh, interrogating Elliot Abrams about his work in uh, various atrocities across Central America, AOC, questioning a whole bunch of different people. So if you are elected and you're on the House who would be your uh, dream corporate villain to interrogate uh, as a sitting House member? I would just really love to see every single person who takes corporate uh, donations from Lockheed Martin stand up in a big line, because I think it would just be this like 
absurd number of electeds and the the contracts that Lockheed Martin has like we have no idea how deep their roots go into this system and I think it's just like so telltale and fascinating and I would love I'm such a researcher I just want people to know that um the entire system is sort of like wrapped around their little finger Heidi thank you very much thanks Micah the Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com. 